I'm Carrie. And I'm Amy, and you are listening to The Perks of Being a Book Lover, a show hosted by two book nerd friends who talk to other book nerds, including authors, poets, librarians, booksellers, and regular readers. Our show follows this format. We always begin with my crabby dullness and Amy's sometimes maddening enthusiasm, although not today. It took us a little bit of time to become self-aware and recognize that we embody the grumpy sunshine trope that we often see in literature. That is followed by a fun conversation with a new bookish friend about what they love about being a bookworm. Then we talk about what we are reading, and finally we put our guest on the hot seat to answer some silly probing questions. We're glad you've joined us. So to close out October this week, we chat with Lee Mandelo, author of Summer Suns, which recently went into paperback. This creepy novel is hard to categorize because it's queer Southern Gothic, dark academia, and ghost story. It also touches on issues of race and class. This book is an amalgam of a lot of different ideas rolled into a complex story of friendship, grief, and family curses. We're so glad Lee joined us to chat about their novel, as well as an upcoming novella titled Feed Them Silence, which comes out in spring 2023. And just a note, in this episode, the audio on my end is going to sound a little bit weird. So the day before we were to record with Lee, my internet service went out and I had to scramble because, of course, the repair people couldn't come out for like a week. And so I reserved a room at my local library to record. It worked, but the space wasn't super audio friendly. So please excuse the wonky audio in this episode. Hopefully it's not going to be too distracting. But first, you need to talk about (laughs) (laughs) We had a replay episode last week because I had this great opportunity to do a week-long trip in Ireland with my husband. But we got back last night around 11 o'clock and I woke up at four o'clock this morning, kind of wide awake and did some laundry and went back to sleep and then woke up again at seven to let my dogs out. Anyway, I am a little bit uh, not myself at the moment, but had a great trip. You know, I was surprised you didn't send me nearly as many pictures as as I expected, but I didn't want to bug you and be like, send me more pictures. Well, Chris told me, he said, give the woman a break, Amy. You know, I tried not to overwhelm you. (laughs) That's funny. What what made him say that? I uh, mean, maybe it's my overenthusiasm <laughs> that we talk about. <laughs> well, tell me, did you have a favorite thing over in uh, Ireland? There were a lot of sheep. I really wanted to pet a sheep, <laughs> and I never did. I never was able you know, to pin one. We down. have those. We have those here. You know. We do, but they're not everywhere like they are there. I mean, I know they say that there's more sheep in Ireland than there is people. And I always thought that was kind of an exaggeration, but it might be true. I think it is true. Now, not so much like outside Dublin, (laughs) but in the western part of the country, when we were driving on these very, very narrow, curvy roads, they're just sheep wandering around, crossing the road and everything. And they do not seem at all scared of cars. No, and they take you, their sweet time to cross the they street. They do. To, but yeah. I, a couple of times I got out to see if I could pet one and they quickly moved away from me. They are not scared of the car, but they were scared of me. I had three or four different bowls of seafood chowder, which mm-hmm. all of them were delicious. I love seafood chowder. But I will say by the last bowl, I thought, you know, I've probably had my fill now. Yeah. <laughs> I probably don't need another bowl of seafood chowder. Uh, what was my favorite? Actually, the first place we were at, Wicklow, it's south of Dublin. There's a like a national park there. There's a, mount, a little mountain range there. All the water that they make Guinness with comes from the waters that run in Wicklow. And we went to this old monastery site called Gwindalock, I think is the way they would pronounce it. Just the grounds around there, there are all these waterfalls and lakes, and it was just so beautiful. I sent you pictures from there because mm-hmm. it, was a, it was a really cool old cemetery there. And a round tower, which they used like during the Viking Age. And I thought that was pretty cool. We went to Galway. I'd never been there before. That was a really nice town. And our weather, for the most part, held out. We didn't have a lot of rain until like our last day or so. Well, that's good. I was really torn, Carrie. It's hard for me because I'm in the middle of spooky reading season, but I'm also going to Ireland and I want to read my Ireland book. So should I read spooky? Should I read Irish? I don't know. I read a little of both, 
but I read a couple of really good Irish books. But I also made my husband upset with me because I also bought several books <laughs> in Ireland and had to then to tote them back. And, and mm. But one of them, I'll have to show a picture on Instagram, was Barbara Kingsolver's newest called Demon Copperhead, which is a mm-hmm. retelling of David Copperfield, but an Appalachian retelling. And the copy that they had at one particular bookstore in Ireland had the most beautiful printed edges on the side. There was a like a design printed mm. on it. It was so pretty. Mm. And so I bought a copy of that. Remember I told you there was a book I wanted to read by Michelle Galen called Factory Girls. Mm-hmm. Uh, she's an Irish author I follow and I really liked her first one. And I could not get it here in time. And I finally figured out it was because it wasn't out in print yet in the United States. So I was at a bookstore and they they had it. So I bought the book that I couldn't get before I left there. Last week, I went with a friend to uh, a Cave Hill Cemetery walking tour. And you know me, I love a cemetery. So it was mm. it was really good. It, they talked about the symbolism on a lot of the gravestones and it was pretty cool. I've been to Cave Hill many times, but you know, I learned a lot from it. So I, ha- you know, I've never been in Cave Hill. Cave Hill is a very well-known cemetery here in Louisville. Um, lots of well-known Louisvillians, like Muhammad, Muhammad Ali, Ali uh, are all buried there. It's it's the Cave Hill Cemetery Foundation, and they do these tours to raise money to help support the cemetery. And they, I mean, they have. All sorts of theme tours, like a bourbon tour. Now they don't provide bourbon, but like you're drinking a... bourbon in the cemetery. <laughs> no. no, 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 no. It's not like you're drinking bourbon as part of this tour. But there's a lot of people who developed the bourbon industry in Kentucky who are buried in Cave Hill. So, so you can go around and learn about those historic bourbon figures in the industry. And then they have a suffragette tour. They have a literary tour. They have a musician tour. Is there a website to find out about these? Yeah. CaveHillHeritageFoundation.org. Hmm. I, I don't know. I just, I love a cemetery. I love a catacomb. I like death. Lee has written a book about some creepy ghosts. Some death. Ghosts and death. <laughs> Quite a yeah. bit of death. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so let's let's listen to, to our chat with Lee. Let's round out our Halloween episodes. We've seen our guest this week, Lee Mandello, in conversation at Carmichael's Bookstore here in Louisville, Kentucky, when they chatted with Perk's former guest, Alex Harrow. And this chat about Lee's book, Summer Suns, piqued our interest. The back cover refers to it as a queer Southern Gothic tale, but I've also seen it called Dark Academia. So it kind of blurs genres a little bit, I think. But we've got Lee here to talk with us about the book and their writing life in general. So welcome, Lee. Hi there. I'm so glad to join you. Looking forward to it. Tell us a little bit about your childhood and writing and reading. Was writing something you always knew that you wanted to do? I think yes. So to some extent, being a very weird young kid in rural Kentucky, a lot of my entertainment was books. And I also think it was kind of a high point in the 90s for a certain amount of like the Goosebumps books and Christopher Pike. And there were all of those books marketed towards very young readers that were a little edgy and a little spooky in a way that I think really kind of led me to become the sort of writer that I am today. Uh, and I also think I had an understanding that people made those objects. Like I was very much from a young age, a kid who would seek out that writer's name on the bookshelf at the library or the Scholastic Book Fair, uh, but also didn't quite know how one achieved that. So I just wrote stories almost compulsively, which I think is something shared across a lot of writers that I know. Before you knew what you were doing, you were still telling stories. It's very human impulse, I think. <laughs> I know you said you were interested in um, the Goosebumps and Christopher Pike types of books. Was that the beginning? I mean, those are, are those really speculative fiction? Those are more like horror light. But when did your interest in the speculative fiction come to be? So that's a really good question and leads me into one of my really nerdy academic answers. Uh, (laughs) From background for folks, I am a doctoral candidate at the moment and have my background in contemporary lit and theory and all that fun stuff. Uh, So I'm weirdly genre agnostic. I think it's a very fun question. 
because genre changes so much, right? Depending on what cultural space you're in, where you're having these conversations. So what does speculative fiction kind of look like to a readership whose familiarity is Game of Thrones on television versus to a lot of readers of like 70s science fiction in translation? You know, they mean very different things by those texts. And horror fiction, too kind of fits under the speculative umbrella, kind of doesn't, sometimes depending on what kind of text we're talking about. So maybe a modern slasher flick, you know, that's pretty directly realist. But then you've got your Dracula. I'm also thinking about the recent uh, Shudder TV show documentary that just started helmed by Brian Fuller, Queer for Fear, that is about how horror fiction and the sort of speculative spooky genre areas really draw queer readers in. And I think that is part of my answer also was as a young queer person, it was a little bit easier to see yourself either as the sexy monster in horror fiction or in these possible futures or possible alternate worlds in fantasy terms where you could exist in the space of your queerness or your gender identity in a way that felt really impossible in the lived reality of rural Kentucky, for my example. So I think that did draw me initially to speculative fiction really broadly construed. But I also read a lot of poetry and literary fiction and other things too, and always have. And I think that that gives me a kind of genre perspective on that they're all doing very similar things with similar tools, but the vibes tend to be a little different. I love to argue that literary fiction is also a genre no more or less than science fiction and fantasy with its own little tips and tricks and useful things in it. So yeah, I've always been interested in it, but also that's complicated by my sense of genre being a very squishy box of things. Mm. Well, I know for myself, even, you know, I'm just kind of dipping my toes into this new editorial position with an online magazine. And I'm constantly having to look up like, you know, because they'll refer to things and I'm like, okay, now what is that? And then having to go and look for the definition Mm -hmm. because I'm like, do I even know what that is? And so it can feel confusing, I think, partly because do you feel like there's a lot more genres than there used to be? Like when I was a kid, I I, I don't know, or even a teenager, it it just didn't seem like, and maybe I just didn't think about it, you know, but it, it just didn't seem like there were as many sort of categories where the industry wanted to silo readers. Yeah. So I'm going to, who again, nerdy academic answer. That's okay. Uh, That's okay. Capitalism and marketing, my friend. (laughs) Yeah. I think that like as kids, you had a really good kind of thing you were getting at there. We aren't paying attention quite as Mm -hmm. much to what we're told the boxes and labels are for things. You're more seeking out what just brings you pleasure as a reader. Mm -hmm. You're not as sort of limited, I think, in that sense to, well, I read this type of book. I'm a romance fan. I'm a science fiction fan. You're just reading what you find a lot as a teen or chasing one writer to another at the back of their book in the blurbs to be like, well, maybe I'll like that. And I do think as we get older and become adults and get more tired and work more, <laughs> it's easy to fall you know, into that habit of like, well, I know that I like romance novels. I like them. They're fine. And then you stop doing that seeking and you mm-hmm. stop doing some of that chasing. But I do think there's very much a marketing question when we talk genre. They're descriptive categories that are, on the one hand, sure, designed to help you find the thing you want. But on the other, they're to sell things to you at the same time. So I think Summer Suns has been really kind of fun on that because it is very dependent on what kind of book you think you're getting, how it's been advertised. (laughs) So in the the queer literary fiction end of things, it's the like coming of age sort of intensity, that thing. In the horror space, it's about the spookiness and the ghosts. In a more broad speculative space, I do see people talk about it more as a Southern Gothic or Dark Academia, how you introed it. And it's the same damn book. So, (laughs) yeah. That's quite a feat, I I think, to be able to sort of fit a lot of different categories. So because it can fit lots of different things, can you give our listeners a little summary? I'm sure you're better at that than we are. So here's the elevator pitch, you know, the usual. It is a queer Southern Gothic about a young man, Andrew, in his early 20s, uh, who has had a very intense codependent 
semi-erotic, though he doesn't quite know that relationship with his lifelong best friend, uh, who has just gone to Vanderbilt for graduate school. He's intending to go follow in his footsteps and, you know, be in his house and be together with him again. And then he dies of an apparent suicide. So Andrew is left sort of trying to pick up the pieces of what happened, whether he believes that it was a suicide, if it was, what that means for him. Uh, And he's also being haunted quite literally by Eddie's like terrible revenant ghost. So the ghost is not a metaphor in Summer Suns. There's a real one. (laughs) It can also be a metaphor, but it sure is real. Uh, And the rest of the book kind of traces out not just his attempts to solve the mystery, as it were, but to form relationships with the pack of mostly queer men that his friend Eddie had been hanging out with, what that means for him and his sexuality, and how he's kind of coming to terms with grief at the same time. I'm interested in the Southern Gothic piece of it because your book's been described as Southern Gothic. So how would you describe that in terms of your book? How does your book fit into that category? I think my favorite thing about the Southern Gothic and what I was definitely playing with on purpose, if I had to pick a genre for Summer Suns, it would be contemporary Southern Gothic, probably, you know. Uh, is that the Gothic as a genre is so much about repression. It is about what hides underneath these seemingly pleasant, polished, classy exteriors, for example, of wealthy families in the South or a place like Vanderbilt, and what is really rotten underneath that surface, uh, what secrets have been buried and particularly looking at Southern Gothic and how it deals with race and the history of chattel slavery and whiteness in the South. So while it's a book that is very much about Southern masculinity and queerness and how complicated that is, it also in the background is very constantly kind of thinking about the politics and histories of place And I think that's something that the Gothic does really well. So you have a very literal ghost haunting coming back, this repressed sexuality and desire. And you also have a plot that is pretty reliant, I would say, without giving any spoilers or too many, on this toxic history of where wealth and power and privilege come from in the South. So where did the idea for the story come from? You know, it seems like a lot of speculative fiction writers ask what if questions, but I guess that's not entirely true. I think probably most writers, a lot of times the kernel of an idea comes from a what if, you know, so what were the what if questions that I guess got this book going? Excellent question. This is where I usually say it's semi-autobiographical. <laughs> Surprising precisely <laughs> no one. Uh, so when I started working on Summer Sons, uh, I had been in a really complicated relationship as like a queer man with a straight identifying man who had been a long-term friend of mine that was not going well. And I had also lost a friend to an overdose that was nebulously we still, you know, we'll never know whether it was suicide or an accident. And I was in my early 20s and really kind of processing those things and thinking about what would it mean for men to be able to love each other in a way that wasn't destructive? Like, what would it mean to sort of recuperate masculinity and the parts of it that are like good and engaging and attractive. And I think that's something that a lot of stories about queerness and masculinity particularly have to deal with is what does it mean to be attracted to this thing that sometimes is actively trying to destroy me and other people that I love? And how does that interact particularly with women who are engaging with it also? Mm -hmm. So I think those were the what if questions in a sense was how do we deal with these things and process what it means to be attracted to the kind of Southern masculinity that we see in an Eddie or a Sam, who's a very different kind of man, though at first glance, they may seem very similar. Well, I want to talk a little bit about Andrew. I mean, the, the, the book has all these, you know, male characters. Andrew is the protagonist. And as you mentioned, he's he's sort of dealing with a lot of heavy stuff. You know, Eddie, his best friend, has died. Uh, he's moved to Nashville to enter this graduate program that Eddie was in. And you definitely get the sense that Andrew is like not, you know, he's definitely not 100% that this is really what he should be doing. And then there's also 
this curse of sorts that began when I, Andrew and Eddie had this uncanny childhood experience in a cavern. And then on top of all that, <laughs> it becomes very clear that Andrew has some unresolved sexual feelings. So, I mean, he is just this character that is full of all these issues. Now that you mentioned that it was sort of semi-autobiographical, were some of these more difficult than others for you to write about? Excellent question. <laughs> yeah. So I think Andrew, as readers have noticed, the book's been out for about a year, so I can see responses on Twitter and, you know, people in your DMs. Uh, he's very difficult, as you say, because he's grieving very, very intensely for the first, I would say, half of the novel. So you're, as the reader, really immersed in what I experienced grief to feel like and how I was trying to craft that experience both in terms of what he's observing and how he's behaving in the plot, to say loosely, but also in the prose. Uh, so you're kind of mired in his sense of wanting to do something about what has happened, but occasionally just running out of energy or running into walls and being totally unwilling to allow people to help him because it would mean admitting vulnerability. It would mean letting people in to like see who he is which is something that he has simply never done because of the intensity of that codependent relationship with Eddie that is both really compelling and in attractive and intense and like socially and personally destructive once he's gone because Andrew doesn't know how to exist on his own. And I think that's probably the hardest part from a craft perspective to deal with was writing about that kind of fresh grief because those characters are not willing to be looked at, but the nature of the novel is to show you what's going on inside their mm -hmm. head. So he's really avoiding thinking about himself at the same time as I, the writer at the you know third person perspective prose level, I'm trying to show the reader what's really going on in there in his little noggin, <laughs> but he won't think about it. So it's mm -hmm. a very difficult craft question of how do I demonstrate it through physical action or through the setting or through the usage of words in the prose, the diction, versus having him be able to say it or know it. Uh, whereas I think once we get to the second half, once we start things a rolling with his relationship with Sam, you're getting a lot more emotional heft from him. He is thinking on purpose more about what's happening and it gets easier. <laughs> the craft level and I think for the audience after that. <laughs> well, you know, it's funny that you say that because that is almost exactly like that is the experience I had with the book. But until you said that, I hadn't really had that obvious connection, you know, like, oh, that's what was happening. So your writing style is very unique in that it feels very suspenseful because, as you mentioned, your your sentence structure and your word choice, but you're right, it does shift later on. And then it feels like, oh, like, like it's almost like I felt like I was held down by spider webs or, you know, like in my head at the beginning, because I'm like, what's going on? And I'm, I almost felt like I was grasping. But I feel like Andrew was doing that, too. So it felt really appropriate. Like, this is what Andrew's going through. So we talk to a lot of authors and I teach high schoolers. And so I always tend to to wonder or feel like writers mean to do this on purpose, you know, mm -hmm. but then sometimes writers will be like, no, I just sort of wrote it. And then when I read it, like, that's how it was. So so was yours intentional or were there other places where it it wasn't intentional? But then, you know, when you would read a draft, you're like, oh, I I did that here and I didn't necessarily intend to do it here. Yeah, I think it's always a little bit of both, right? Like, I love this kind of question, thinking about the, really the nitty gritty of how we do the art making. Mm -hmm. uh, and I think it goes for a lot of folks who maybe don't write. Uh, it's not their hobby, their their joy. You know, the, the first draft is usually not what the text is. <laughs> so there's a level of intentionality of course, but I think some of that comes out a lot in layers of revisions. So to the point you said at the very end, it's a mix of both for me. I think to some extent, Andrew, is a question of, is this just how I write? Absolutely, because some of his psychic state reflects so closely how I felt those things at a different time in my life also. So I'm really drawing from that 
sense of feeling that I sort of carry in my own bones, as it were. But then once you have that first draft of how you wrote it, you can really see where you can punch that up, where you can dial it down, what's too much. Uh, Particularly with that first half of the book, it went through a lot of revision to really dial down almost on a sentence level because it was a little too hard to get through in the first draft. (laughs) Like it was a bit more intense on the Mm -hmm. really disassociated way that he was viewing the world. And it made it, I think, kind of challenging for early readers in a way that was not productive, right? Like, I want you to feel a little bad. I don't want you to put the book down. (laughs) Those are two different things. So then it was really dialing into, okay, here's what I have. Here's what I want to achieve. How can I manipulate the language and change the pacing and maybe even the imagery to do that on purpose even more? But of course, there's always things that you didn't know you were doing that you achieve that people point out later and you can be like, oh, yeah, totally. That was totally (laughs) Even if it was probably just your subconscious, because there's a lot of weird subconscious things that go into art making, right? Like it all comes out of who you are, your experiences, your way of seeing the world. So that's something that I think comes up a lot with Summer Sons and just with my prose in general, uh, even as a critic, is that I'm very attendant to things like affect. So your emotions, your vibes, all those like bodily intensities, and how the physical world interacts with those sort of feeling bodies. So, you know, you read a lot of prose and some of it's very good that I really like that's very cerebral in a sense. It's very located in a character or a narrator's mind and their perceptions. And you don't really have that sense of the body. But I think for me particularly, maybe this comes out of all the the queer theory work or just living in the world as I do. I don't see things that way. I tend to be thinking about how a body moves through space and what that feels like. And I think particularly in horror or queer fiction, when we're getting into themes of the erotic, the body really matters. And if you're only writing about how someone is thinking on the inside, you can't achieve that kind of emotional texture. So that's something that I really try to layer in also, I guess, on revision to build up that tension is to give you more of a bodily sense of what suspense, you know, feels like when you experience it. Well, you saying that it made me think about when Eddie's Revenant, it, it, it comes to Andrew at different points in the story. And, you know, it's not just like the ghost is just kind of like, hey, I'm over here. I mean, like he <laughs> immerses himself with Andrew's body and and those parts were, I mean, like really intense. Like you're like as a reader, I'm going I'm not 100% sure that I even understand what's happening, but it's so cool. I have to keep reading to see if I can figure it out, you know, and I feel like that was such a powerful way that you did it. It made it very visceral, I guess, for me as a reader. Yeah, I feel like we usually think of ghosts as sort of more ephemeral, right? Mm -hmm. So there was an element of fun for me in the question of, well, maybe it's ephemeral to everyone else, but what is it like to be sort of consumed and possessed and in a very real way, like penetrated by the ghost Mm -hmm. of your dead best friend slash not really boyfriend. And there's a (laughs) lot going on there. (laughs) Right. In the story, Eddie was studying family folklore and curses. And I was just wondering, is this an area that you're interested in as well? And did you do any research just to sort of like get in the mood to write about it? Yes. Uh, So there's a fun little Easter egg in when Andrew is looking through Eddie's notes uh, that is about like the Bell Witch. And there's so much writing about that as like a really big myth in Tennessee. So I did a lot of that sort of research uh, because I'm from Kentucky. So it's close, but not quite. I dislocated us ever so slightly from where things are from for me into a nearby similar but a little different kind of space. So I had to take some of my own childhood interest as someone from the Appalachian South in how superstitious we simply are as a people (laughs) in ways that I did not think about until going to graduate school myself or moving to England for a while, doing those sorts of things where I realized 
I thought of myself as a very scientifically minded theoretical person who's not particularly woo woo, you know, about anything. <laughs> oh no, but here's like this list of 30 very serious superstitions that I firmly believe in. <laughs> It's like, oh, I see. You know, like you're really shaped by how you grow up. So it did really interest me uh, what sort of local things that I just thought of as norms, but then you can be kind of dislocated productively and think, oh, no, other people don't think like that. They've never heard that saying before. They've never, for example, the whole you don't go out a different door in a house than you went in. It's bad luck. That is apparently not something every human thinks. Surprise. <laughs> I did do more research on top of that to sort of locate myself more purposefully to think about which of those things I would use, which I wouldn't. And as I said, with the Gothic, particularly in the South, there's something about the idea of curses and family curses that I think really pulls us back to that truth of where the economy here comes from and why perhaps land would be haunted with the legacies of Native American removal and genocide, chattel slavery. It's a bad zone in a way that I think particularly right now politically, there are folks who actively do not want us to talk about the fact that that is the history (laughs) that we are living on every single day, that it is an alive history Uh, And I think that there's something about the idea of a curse that really literalizes how alive that history still is to the people who live here and who died here. So I thought that was important to me, particularly as a white person, to deal with those things and to think about them through that lens. Uh, And family curses especially, I think readers will notice as they go through that all of the families that have terrible curses share something in common about Mm -hmm. their history on the land. (laughs) So, yeah. (laughs) Well, now I have to ask. So the the whole thing about the door, do you still only go in the door you came out of? Because I have the same thing. Like I sort of fight against that. So (laughs) I think I've just accepted it. I'm like, you know, (laughs) maybe it's a form of science. People have been smart forever. There's a reason every culture has superstitions. Can't hurt. (laughs) Your novel doesn't paint a really great picture of academic life. So Andrew's mentor, Tom West, is disgruntled for understandable reasons that become more clear as the novel progresses. And one of the professors is just weird as heck, and that is a a huge understatement. (laughs) So you mentioned that you're pursuing a PhD. So I'm curious whether there's any nugget of truth to the sneaky and often unethical behavior that, that we see in the novel. And why did you want to explore that? (laughs) So I think this is where the fun part from the intro of whether this is dark academia or not comes (laughs) up, uh, because I think all academia is dark academia, (laughs) frankly. Uh, And I'm also pretty, mm, I'll say I side-eye a little bit some of the really romanticized aesthetic elements of contemporary dark academia that seem really enamored with things like the intense class bias of higher education Like, wouldn't it be so cool if we were all like rich kids doing murder? And fine, sure. (laughs) But I think there's a reality underneath that that is really messy and very actively lived right now. Uh, So I started grad school, did a couple of master's degrees, and then dropped out as a pretty direct result of how the system is designed to really grind down any sort of diverse student body. We'll put it that Mm. way. So anyone from a marginalized background, particularly from any class position that is anywhere below upper middle class. We still today, like in my doctoral program, my yearly salary to teach higher division courses to students is about (gasps) $15,000. So I made more money as a barista or working as a line cook than I do as a professor. And that's normal, which is not unique. Mm. So there's really something to the way that it tries to block out uh, students from lower class backgrounds while sort of pretending that it doesn't because it's a very progressive pretending space. And yet I'm also getting a doctorate. So clearly I have like a complicated (laughs) investment in that I want the system to change. Uh, But I think as it currently is, it is still pretty deeply abusive in a lot of ways Uh, And I did want to kind of dig into that. And I chose Vanderbilt as an institution 
specifically because of their just truly massive endowment and where some of that money originates from. Again, as we know, chattel slavery in the South, originator of wealth, etc., that that's just something that doesn't really get acknowledged very much. Mm. And you see universities doing things like, you know, before events, you'll give a land acknowledgement to the indigenous peoples whose land this traditionally was, but what are you actually doing? And I think there's a lot of that sort of space that I still have a lot of problems with that I wanted to explore in the academic space is how classed and raced and gendered all of these things really are, even when they pretend not to be. Hmm. So that was a pretty, pretty aggressive answer on some ways. <laughs> I'm wondering, did you get any kind of feedback from like Vanderbilt alumni after the publication of your book? <laughs> so no names will be revealed in this process, but I did get m- multiple, I'll say multiple DMs from people who had graduated from or were students of Vanderbilt who were like, yeah, get them. <laughs> like, literally no one was like, you know, they're much nicer than that. <laughs> I think you will find that most doctoral and grad students have the most negative views of the institution of higher education of anybody out there. Oh my goodness. Well, you have a a novella coming out in March of next year titled Feed Them Silence. It's going to be published by Tor.com. And reading the blurb about it, we couldn't help but think a little bit of Call of the Wild, except from a human perspective and a whole lot weirder. So tell us a little bit about your upcoming novella. Yeah. So I've been prefacing this one's elevator pitch as get ready to feel bad. Uh, It is a different (laughs) kind of book than Summer Suns. And I think, you know, that's important because a lot of folks really enjoyed Summer Suns for it's like, we've got a kind of hopeful vibe. We're dealing with queerness and coming of age and all these things. And uh, Feed Them Silence is a near future science fiction novella that is very much about climate catastrophe and neoliberal science funding and how humans are like deeply selfish and we're probably maybe a little doomed. Uh, so the premise is that a neuroscience researcher gets a venture capital fund to sort of do a neurological interface to translate a wolf's perception into her own brain so she can pursue this lifelong curiosity about what it means to be in a wolf pack, which, hey, a lot of us have felt. Uh, but unfortunately, She's a terrible wife, like to her partner. She is not kind to her researchers. She's like a deeply selfish person. And a lot of the novella is really working through what it means to be that kind of researcher, because I think that is something we don't see a lot of in science fiction that deals with research on animal subjects and sort of the non-human world and where we seem to be going as a species. And I will say that I did write that draft initially in the first three months of COVID isolation. Mm. <laughs> so it's got a certain energy to it that I think a lot of 2023, 2024 titles might be bringing to the table. <laughs> <laughs> uh, for me, at least, Get Ready to Feel Bad, is a, that's a good selling ploy for me personally. <laughs> I know it's not for everybody, but it is for me. So <laughs> yeah. I want people to know what they're getting and to get it on purpose. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So I wanted to talk about the form of the novella for a moment. It seems like novellas are especially big thing in sci-fi fantasy right now. And uh, I say that as having read a couple of sci-fi fantasies, Tor.com has a whole series of novellas that that they put out. So I'm wondering what your thoughts are on this form and maybe why it's particularly popular in that genre as opposed to others? Just what what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, so I think it's a really fun question because some of that goes to the literal mechanics of publication and distribution, right? Uh, So novellas and long fiction at that space used to be really popular everywhere when everywhere had more fiction magazines genre-wise. It's like a form really well-designed for a magazine. You get a pretty intense story. It can be longer. You can have more thematic depth, which is what I really dig about them. But it's, you know, a third of the length, right, of a full novel in a lot of cases. But in terms of publication landscape, the vast majority of those popular fiction magazines that used to be big are gone, except in the speculative fields, which has kind of never lost its romance with short fiction. 
and novellas kind of feel like that cusp, right, between short fiction and the novel, I do think they're actually still very common in literary fiction in collections. So pretty much any time you go pick up someone's short fiction collection in the lit genre, you're going to get a novella in that book. But they don't tend to have separate publication, so I think they don't get as much attention as novellas, which I feel like is a very nerdy answer. Uh, but <laughs> I think I like them because you can focus sort of on an A plot and a B plot thematically or literally, whereas a short story is really quick, right? You get enough room for one idea, one theme, one thing that you want to do, whereas a novel is like 10 or 15. You know, you've got all this mm -hmm. space and it's a different kind of project. Whereas I feel like a novella is kind of the difference between a movie versus a TV series. A movie gives you enough room to do multiple things, to really have a fun thematic arc with a couple of different aspects of characterization or narrative going on, but it's not so long that you need the whole series to work it out. Whereas a short story is more like a, you know, a short film. So I think that helps me in thinking about what I want to do when I'm writing a novella, that it is simply a different form. Like what can I fit into this form versus a short story versus a novel, if that makes sense. I think some of it, particularly in SFF, is just that Tor.com created an imprint and it's been very successful and particularly because of who they chose to work at that length in that first couple of years, they were all heavy hitter, just amazing folks who do work that tends to be a little cross genre. So you were getting the fans of science fiction, the fans of fantasy, but also more literary readers who do the crossover. And because of that success, it has kept going. Well, I wish that more genres had novellas because as a reader myself, sci-fi and fantasy is not a genre that I generally go for, but I have mm -hmm. enjoyed reading a few novellas because it's like I can dip my toe in and try it out and see what I think. Yeah. I feel like novellas and comics sometimes, like a graphic novel, a standalone, hit that same time frame of reading in a way that I find really pleasurable. Sometimes you only have an afternoon. You just want right. to read a thing and be done. <laughs> right. Yeah, for sure. Well, I know you said you were, you know, nerding out a little bit, but I, and I think Amy have thoroughly enjoyed hearing your insights on your book, Summer Suns, but also on different concepts, genres, and forms of writing. So we're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, our guest, Lee Mandelo and Amy and I are going to talk about what we've been reading. We are back with Lee Mandelo, author of Summer Suns, and with Carrie. Carrie, we're in the thick of October now. I had to turn my heat on this morning. Did you? No. No, no? I just oh. have, yeah, I'll, I'll put on like two pairs of socks and a couple sweaters. And yeah, I'm a little bit, I mean, I'm not like anti-furnace or anything, but it has to get a little bit colder. Also, I'm just sometimes too lazy. And, and you know, I, the whole technology of, it's got all these buttons and it'll say, you know, like hold. And I'm like, what are we holding? Am I holding on to the new temperature that I'm putting it at? Am I holding on to the old temperature that it was at? It's just the thermostat is That was not a much a longer I, answer than I was expecting. I know. The, the short answer is really no, I, I did not do that. <laughs> What, what I am really I reading? I is, yes. Well, I will tell you. So we're recording this. We're well into Halloween season. And when you think about being scared around this time of year, there are things that you know aren't real and can't actually happen, but that still creep you out. But then there are scary things that are real and can happen. And so this book that I'm going to talk about is more in the things that are real and can happen camp. The book is called The Haunting of Haji Hotak and Other Stories by Jamil John Kochai. And I heard about this book actually on Twitter. So Kochai was born in a refugee camp for Afghans located in Pakistan. And he came to the U.S. when he was a year old. His family spoke Pashto and a little bit of Farsi. So he was behind in English during his early years, just because he wasn't around English-speaking people. 
So when he was seven years old, his teacher, Susan Lung, worked with him after school almost every day for a whole year. And he gives her a large part of the credit for him being able to become a a reader and a writer and now the author that he has become because of her help and encouragement. Like he had spent 20 years or more trying to locate her. And so they recently reconnected and it was on Twitter. So it was kind of like a, you know, a at least a news story that I heard about. So this book is a collection of short stories and it covers a lot of ground, but it's all about being haunted by the past or by violence or by trauma of some kind. So some of the stories use sort of like fantastical and fairy tale elements So there's the the first story in the book is about a boy and he's playing a video game. But then in the video game, it almost like combines with reality and connects with his father. His father was a, a mujahid in Afghanistan. But then other stories are very much grounded in reality. Uh, Some are set in the U.S. and some often begin in the U.S., but then move to Afghanistan. So the collection haunts the reader with these stories of the Afghan diaspora because you know that the deaths of brothers and sisters and aunts and parents are not the fantasy part, but that's part of the haunting. Those are the kind of deeply scary things that have happened in this book. Uh, and I recommend it. It's uh, short stories, The Haunting of Haji Hotak and Other Stories by Jamil John Kochai. Well, Lee, what have you been up to in terms of your reading? So I have been recently drafting another project and therefore I didn't really read anything for like four months. But the first book that I've read on coming back to other people's prose uh, is Saeed Jones's newest Alive at the End of the World. Jones also wrote previously the poetry collection Prelude to Bruise in 2014 and a memoir called uh, How We Fight for Our Lives. Uh, He's a Black queer writer who was born in Tennessee, grew up in Texas, currently in Ohio. So there's a lot of sort of affinities that I felt uh, with his previous work. And I've really been looking forward to this new collection. I had it on my stack as a reward for as soon as my draft was done. It was the first thing I read. And I was really glad that it was the first thing I read because it felt very much of the moment in a way that I think that I needed as a reader. The title obviously gives you a sense of some of the thematic ground that he's covering Uh, And there are multiple poems as you go through the book that are titled Alive at the End of the World. And each Mm -hmm. one of them is sort of a different reflection on what it's like to be living in the contemporary American state as a Black person, as a queer person, with sort of this overwhelming rush of constant violence uh, from the state, from fascists, from all of these things. Uh, Gun violence in particular comes up quite a bit. Uh, There's a poem dedicated to the victims of the Pulse nightclub shooting, for example. But at the same time, there are also very playful poems and very intense poems about sort of love and joy and the erotic and what it means to have all of these community connections at the end of the world, if we feel like we're living through the end of the world right now. Uh, So it's really balancing very on purpose that deep pain and trauma with how we survive it. Like, what do we do to bring each other together? And another through line in the book is a series of poems about Black artists through history whose work has been co-opted and sanitized and made palatable to white audiences. And all of them are absolutely phenomenal. And some are very funny and some are very mean in a delightful way. (laughs) Uh, And I think that was just a really excellent read for me to kind of come back to other people's prose and language because Saeed is just so sharp. He's just a phenomenal writer. (laughs) So definitely recommend the book, even if you're not a usual poetry reader. I feel like they're very well crafted. They're very readable. They're doing a lot, but they're not going to make you feel dumb if that's your concern listening out in the world. (laughs) Yes. Alive at the End of the World by Saeed Jones. Well, Amy, but I know you've been in like this weird reading, a slump or a depression. I don't know what it is. What what have you been able to get through? I have a lot of book angst right now. But yeah, today I'm going to talk about a short story that I read by Alma Katsu called The Werewolf. And it's spelled W-E-H-R. 
Wolf. And this is an Amazon original story. And I don't ever buy any of my books on Amazon. I always buy them from independent booksellers. But Amazon does have a couple of things that is unique to them. And they publish several times a year collections of short stories by very popular authors on a particular theme. And each story is a separate download. And if you're an Amazon Prime member, they're free for you. And and the other thing is that usually there's an audio version included with it. So you can either listen to to the story or you can read it with your eyeballs. And so I have listened to some of the Amazon stories before and I've enjoyed many of them. And I was particularly interested in this one, um, The Werewolf by Almakatsu, because she is an author that I follow on Instagram and I have also read several of her books. They're classified as horror or historical horror, but to me personally, they're they're not super scary, but what she's known for is taking real historical events and adding a touch of supernatural to them. For example, her most recent book, The Fervor, it was set in the Pacific Northwest during World War II, and it involved the Japanese internment camps, and it added some folk horror from Japanese folktales to the mix. And she's also written books about the Titanic and the Donner Party that all have supernatural overtones. But in this short story that came out a few weeks ago, Katsu returns to the theme of World War II, but this time it's set in rural Germany towards the end of the war when it is apparent to the German population that the war is not going well and it's probably lost and that their village will possibly be invaded by Allied troops soon. So the people of the village, for the most part, were not fans of the Nazis or the Nazi party, but there is a small group of men who are headed up by a kind of a blowhard named Hans, who is still loyal to the Nazis. And he scares the townspeople into believing that the Allied troops will bring violence to their town and that all the men need to pull together to protect their families and go after these Allied troops. The protagonist's name is Uwe, and he's a husband and a father who doesn't like the Nazis, but he's scared for his wife and child. So he joins Hans and his men and goes on a trip to check the perimeter of the village one night. But instead of going with them, Uva is locked in the basement of an old church. And when he's let go the next morning, he is a different person. So I don't want to say too much because it's a short story and anything I say might might give away <laughs> some spoilers. But I don't think it's a spoiler to say that there are werewolves involved in the story because that is the title after all. But the story itself has an allegorical quality to it. And Katsu said that she was inspired to write it after the January 6th insurrection on our United States Capitol. And there are tons of things to talk about with the story, none of which I can say without giving away things, but I think it's an interesting one to read. Alma Katsu has an interesting history. She was a senior intelligence analyst for many years with the CIA and I think some other government organizations. And her focus was on mass atrocities and genocides, not light stuff. Um, But I would recommend this story if you want, you know, a shorter horror read this Halloween season or any season. And again, the name of it is The Werewolf by Alma Katsu. Mm, Sounds bleak. I'd I'd probably like it. You'd probably really like it, Carrie. (laughs) Her work is very fun. I have read some before. (laughs) I have not read this story. She also has a series of what are more like um, government thrillers. But I find the historical horror thing pretty interesting. All right. Well, let's take another quick break. And when we come back, we're going to put Lee Mandelo on the hot seat and ask probing, ridiculous questions. We'll be back. (laughs) We are back with our guest, Lee Mandelo, author of Summer Suns. Lee, are you ready? Yes, let's do it. All right. Question number one in three in the third degree. You learned to speak Scouse while overseas. What is that language and was it difficult to learn? So a series of listeners from the UK are probably laughing now uh, because Scouse is just (laughs) what the folks in Liverpool call their dialect or their accent. And I lived there for my master's in contemporary literature at the University of Liverpool And the combination of their accent and my moderate, (laughs) still sort of unpolished Southern accent was really a challenge for everyone. 
Uh, multiple <laughs> times I would get in cabs and try to ask for places to go. And we would simply look at each other and be like, we're both speaking English, but I have literally no idea what you just said and really try to work our way to the middle. Uh, it is not dissimilar sometimes to those like intense Scottish accents here up in the north. Oh. There's a lot going on there. <laughs> Oh, okay. My my family, we are planning to go to Scotland next summer. I had a conversation with a travel agent who's Scottish, and I'm sure he thought I was an idiot because I answered what I thought he was saying and asking. But then based on his answer, I was like, I don't think that's what he actually asked me. <laughs> he seems not to know what I'm talking about. So I'll be interested to see how that shakes out next summer. Yeah. Back in the day, I, I visited some writer friends, some of whom are still in Scotland, some who aren't uh, Amal Omatar and Hal Duncan. And Amal is not originally from Scotland, but had been there at the time for university. And we went out to the pub and it was clear about two beers in that Amal and I were not from Scotland and everyone else was. <laughs> and it was quite difficult to process the conversation in a delightful way after that. I had fun, but who knows how much sense I made. <laughs> All right. Now, my question now. So what is the coolest gift or token that a fan has sent you? Yes. So I will give their store a little plug. Uh, the store Gothic Bullshit. We can bleep me if you can't say that on the radio. Uh, <laughs> do sort of book themed shirts and tote bags and stickers. And they did a small series of them for Summer Sons characters and quotes and they sent me copies of them. They're delightful. So I have a shirt that says, come home with the hands and some vine designs. And that is simply by far the coolest thing anyone has ever made for me. But I also love all the fan art. And occasionally people get brave and tag me in the sexy fan art. And I do love that. So if anyone was ever <laughs> unsure if that's appropriate, it is feel free. <laughs> <laughs> I wrote the book. You're allowed to draw the scenes. <laughs> Well, okay. So now I'm looking up this Gothic site and I'm going to follow them on Instagram now because I mean, those are two words that I just, I love. I love them together. I love them apart. So it's also good. They did such a great job. <laughs> that's fantastic. Awesome. All right. Last question. So you claim to take too many photos. So we have a number of questions to tack onto this. So how many photos are on your phone as of right this minute? What do you take entirely too many photos of? And what would you like to take more photos of? So I've just opened uh, my iPhone gallery. And under the recents, the current number is 7,387 <laughs> photos. <saved>. So <laughs> I didn't take all of them. Uh, as people who are familiar with my Twitter have probably gathered. I'm a K-pop fan. I like a lot of gay drama shows. I save tons of photos of very handsome men doing the things that they do in queer media. So that's some of it. I won't take credit for all the photos, uh, but I <laughs> tend to be a food photos person. That's also my, uh, I think, Instagram stories brand at this point, if anyone has a brand, is that I cook a lot. I go to restaurants a lot. I get takeout a lot. I love food and coffee, and I'm pretty much always posting what I'm eating or cooking. So I take way too many food photos, sometimes at the same restaurant. And that's where I know I've gone wrong. <laughs> <laughs> What's the most recent picture? Like, if you pull it up, what's the picture of? Okay. the If you can say. The most recent one. No, this is funny. I will say. Very famous for being an extremely buff and busty K-pop star, Wanho did a show recently. And one of his encore outfits was like a sexy sort of like a Boy Scout outfit with really tiny shorts. And he is giving the camera a little kissy face in the tiny shorts with his big muscly legs. And I say that and I'm not ashamed of it. <laughs> All right. Well, so now I got to know, Amy, what's the last picture that you saved? What's the last picture? Yeah. If we're going to make Lee do it, I think that. Yeah, that, put me uh, on blast. Okay, you too. guys yeah. got me too. <laughs> Well, I might even post this one on Instagram. It's me with, with my janky podcast setup here at the library <laughs> with my paint with my paint drop cloth that ha you can see like paint stains on it. My computer, my microphone, and my little cup of coffee because there is a coffee shop inside this branch of the library from Quills. It's not a terrible nice. picture. 
<laughs> yep. Yep. All right. Well, my most recent picture What's about you, is. Carrie? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I, I won't post it only because if I did, my husband would kill me. He is just a very super private person, which I, I respect that. But this morning we took our our two boys and we went and all got our COVID, the, the most recent booster. And so our daughter texted us and she had to work today. I texted her and said at vaccine clinic. And then I sent her a picture of her dad and her brothers just, you know, they had gotten their shots and they were just sitting there waiting. So, well, Lee. It has been a pleasure having you on the show today. Thanks so much for talking to us about Summer Sons. Uh, It's now in paperback. Is that right? Yes. Okay. And uh, Feed Them Silence is due to come out in March 2023. Thanks so much, Lee. Thank you. I had so much fun. You can find more information about Lee Mandelo on social media at Lee Mandelo. For show notes for any episode, go to our website at www.perksofbeingabooklover.com. We're also on Instagram at Perks of Being a Book Lover Pod and on Facebook at Perks of Being a Book Lover. If you like what we're doing with the show, tell a friend. Word of mouth is one of the best ways to help people find us. Or leave us a review on your favorite podcast platform like Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Finally, a huge thank you to Forward Radio 106.5 FM, a grassroots community radio station in Louisville, Kentucky. You can find our shows there, live or in archives at forwardradio.org.